Hey everyone, welcome to Hub City Church. We are ordinary people following an extraordinary God together. If you want more information about Hub City Church, find us online at thehubcitychurch.com connect and fill out our digital connect card. Now let's dive into this week's message. So today we are going to be reading Daniel 5, 1 through 13, and then 17 through 28. You can follow along on your phones or in your Bible, or it's going to be up on the screen. Let me just zoom in here. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of, the, of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drink from them. While they drink from them, they praise their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in, fe- in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in and none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant, so the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles too were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king, don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor king Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptionally has an exceptional ability and has filled and is filled with the divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writings mean. So Daniel was brought to the king. Daniel answered the king, "Keep your gifts and give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writings mean." Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven." until he learned the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You knew all this, yet you had not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you, and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone." Gods that neither 
see nor hear nor know anything at all, but you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is what the message, this is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. That was, this is what those words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed and on the, on the balances and you have not measured up. Parsin means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is the word of the Lord. There is something valuable to just stopping and seeing the entirety of this text. Some of these stories are so familiar to us that we, we miss moments. And I hope that, you know, as we're sitting there listening to those, that you would stop and, and maybe it helps you to close your eyes and visualize it. Sometimes it, it's following along on the screen when we do these. Um, some are shorter, some are longer. But the Word of God says that, that my words are going to be forgotten, but His are going to be eternal. And so why would we sacrifice the reading of his word that is forever uh, for the sake that we get more time with Sean, right? <laughs> like, my words will be forgotten by lunchtime, the word of the Lord, man, I want this to sink deep. And, uh, and that's why I value just taking a few moments to read those scriptures in their entirety and, and take it all in. And we've been looking through the book of Daniel, and as we're looking at Daniel's story, we're seeing examples of courageous faith, somebody who lives it with a boldness and a strength, and our hope is that we would discover and develop our own courageous faith for the tough situations that we encounter. And so over the past few weeks, these are the courageous elements uh, that we've been seeing in Daniel's story in the first few chapters of Daniel. Each chapter kind of gives us a, a, a nugget of what courage really looks like compared to what our culture would say courage looks like. Uh, this is a courageous faith based in a courageous conviction, right? Having this baseline of truth that's guiding our lives, something that we can depend on and lean on, uh, having courageous dependency within those convictions that we are dependent more on the strength of the Lord rather than the strength of ourselves. And that's, that's where we find our reliance is in our relationship with God. Courageous companions, because we aren't live, living life alone. We need people. We're meant to be with people, share life with people. And throughout these stories, we see moments where people were supporting each other in their faith to say, let's do this, let's go for it, right? And last week, we talked about courageous humility, that it's not just the message we share, but it's how we share it that matters, is that God cares about our heart and our delivery of that message. And, and let's not be UPS drivers or Amazon Prime drivers who are just punting our packages to the front door of our neighbors, right? And sometimes we've got the gospel and we just... We want to drop kick it at them rather than gracefully and humbly and compassionately deliver this message that they've been given or need to be given. This week we look at Daniel in this party situation where he has a moment before the king and it's a moment that's going to require a courageous response, a time when you and I need to speak up. And it reminds me, if you take chapter five, it reminds me of an episode out of The Office, all right? You guys, any Office fans in the room? Right, Michael Scott, world's best boss, right? Bought his own cup, right? He had to do his own pastor appreciation party gift. Uh, I'm very grateful and thankful for that. My love language is gifts, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, and I'm a big Office fan. I, I love that show. There's an episode in there, though, where the company of Dunder Mifflin is, is struggling. And I tried to find this clip 
but all copyright was just like hampering down on this since we live stream. So I'm going to just give a quick moment into an episode here where the, the company is struggling and they have the shareholders meeting. And they bring all the big wigs of the company together and they're in this hotel suite trying to figure out how are we going to solve these problems? How are we going to fix this company? What are we going to do? And one of the regional branch managers, Michael Scott, brings his accountant in and he brings Oscar into the room and says, Oscar, tell him how to solve the problem. And Oscar's wondering, Michael, why did you bring me in here? And he says, Oscar, you're always telling me in the office break room how to figure this out. You've got all the answers to fix the problems of Dunder Mifflin, come and tell us. And he puts him right up there, and this is Oscar's moment, and what does Oscar do? He freezes, like me in my Shakespeare acting class in college. I froze. I, that's a literal moment, if I could bring that one up. Had to memorize a monologue in Shakespeare, and that's not one you can just improvise. Much like that, Oscar Nunez is standing in front of these shareholders, and he just, um, uh, uh, you're doing a great job. You're going to figure it out. And he just kind of goes out the back door. I wonder how many Christians are given a moment to respond, to speak, to share. We're put in a moment where we get an opportunity to speak something that needs to be heard, and we freeze up like Oscar. We freeze up like Sean in Shakespeare class. We freeze up and, uh, what do I say? I, I, and what causes us to freeze up? What causes us to stop talking? I, I think at its, at its most basic element, one of the biggest things that's going to stop us, when people have questions about life and questions about their faith and have a spiritual curiosity, and we are in a moment where we could share what we believe about Jesus, we will freeze up because of fear. Fear will keep us silent. And there's lots of reasons and layers and complexities to that, but how many of us can relate to we are silent because of a fear of rejection, a fear of being misunderstood, a fear of conflict? I don't want, I don't want to talk about Jesus right now because I, I don't want conflict. I'm a non-confrontational person. I don't, I don't want that. I'm a people-pleasing person. I don't, I don't want to go there. Fear of loss. Oh, we're going to lose this relationship. I'm going to lose this or lose that. Feeling like a hypocrite. I'm scared that I'm going to be misrepresented and misunderstood, and they're going to think I'm one of those judgmental Christianese people. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to speak up. Scared that we might sound too harsh and judgmental. I can't talk about that because I'm going to come off as that rude Christian. I don't want to hurt somebody, so I'm not going to say anything. And I think our fear is something that is real for many of us. And it is a moment to stop and articulate and put into words what is at the root of those fears. Because that is an indicator, right? That is a, that is a, a, a dashboard light blinking on our life saying, there's a reason you want to stop. Fear is that, that feeling where it's like, I'm going to back up in this conversation. Fear is that cue of like, ah, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm not going to talk about these things. We're going to just end it. And we need to stop and think about those fears and, and address those things and think about it because it, it puts into words that we can become more aware when we're going into those moments or when those spontaneous moments of conversation come up. We can become aware like, yeah, I'm really scared that of conflict, or I'm really scared of rejection, or I'm really not a big fan of, you know, being misrepresented. If you understand that, it's going to change the way you approach the next conversation or the next opportunity. 
instead of being silenced, instead of freezing up. And the more I thought about it and I was reading in Scripture, that our silence is a natural instinctual reaction for, for that fear to take over. But I, I, I also see that there are times where our silence can, can be a form of disobedience. As you look in Ezekiel 3, you'll see this, this text where the prophet Ezekiel is feeling this strong conviction to speak up. And if he doesn't speak up, he's going to be disobeying God. God is giving him an opportunity. God's opening up a conversation, opening up a door, giving him influence with people's lives, right? Putting him in that place and saying, here you go. And if Ezekiel were to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to care more about myself. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to protect my reputation. I'm going to protect my plans. That's actually an act of disobedience to our God to withdraw from that conversation, to be silent in that conversation. And again, that seems tough. That seems harsh. Oh, man. But there is a moment where you and I have opportunity to talk. Are we speaking up? Instead of being Christians who freeze up like Oscar in front of the shareholders and freeze up like Sean on Shakespeare Day, right? How do we be people who courageously respond? And so today I want to talk about four attributes of courageous response and being people who, when that opportunity comes, we take it. And we take it with all the ingredients we've been talking about, with humility and with conviction and with people in our lives and through relationship. And we're talking about all of those things we cannot sacrifice last week. If you missed last week about humility, that is a key part of this because we do not want to be jerks for Jesus, right? That is a huge conviction of mine in our sharing of the gospel. And all throughout Scripture, we see that love matters in the way that we talk about these things. That is important. But how do we not be people who remain silent? How do we seize those opportunities to respond and talk? There is value in stepping up and having courageous conversations, courageous responses, courageous, sometimes even confrontations. Hello. Anybody scared of confrontation? Addressing the 800-pound gorilla in the room sometimes? There's value in having those moments, those conversations. Daniel models that for us. Think about why those conversations are valuable. Those conversations preserve relationship. Rather than severing relationship, you're saying, I'm going to fight for this relationship. I'm going to contend for this relationship. I'm fighting for a person, not an issue. Sometimes it restores relationship because we're bringing something up where somebody is living in sin, and sin leads to brokenness and death and uh, a fractured relationship with God, a fractured relationship with people, and there's habits that we develop in life. And sometimes God gives us an opportunity to help somebody see a blind spot of sin that's been living in their lives, and they're not seeing the repercussions, right? But we get a chance to have a hard conversation about some of the habits and rhythms of their life because they trust us. And instead of being silent, we're going to speak. What are we doing? We're actually restoring relationship. We're fixing something that God is putting in front of us, an opportunity, and allowing a, a restored relationship that's been divided by sin or just divided for whatever reasons. If I remain silent, it's a missed chance and a missed opportunity. Think about the growth you develop as a disciple when you speak up rather than always remaining silent. You learn to spiritually grow, emotionally grow, relationally grow. You, you become more dependent upon God. My God, what am I going to say in this hard conversation, right? You grow as a disciple. They grow as disciples. 
the benefits of these conversations, as tough as they can be, you are sometimes helping, and we see this in Daniel's moment with this king, you are sometimes helping people that live in a distorted reality. Anybody ever try AR goggles and, and just kind of watch those silly? I love watching people with AR goggles. You ever watch those people, right? They put the virtual reality goggles, and they just like, they're just living in this world, and you're just watching them in your living room like, you cuckoo. I did some AR baseball with Maverick one time. He put on these goggles, and you just, I mean, you're watching my seven-year-old son, but also watching full-grown adults in these batting cages with AR goggles, and they're just swinging as hard as they can, like breaking their backs and having to go to the chiropractor. Why? Because they're so enveloped in this distorted reality. All that we can see is like, hey, you're not really hitting a baseball. In fact, you're about to hit the attendant if you don't take a step back. Well, some of us are living in such a way with our lives that we are living in a distorted reality where we think we're right and everyone else is wrong and we need people to come into our lives and say, hey, Sean, you don't have it all figured out. Your reality is quite distorted. Let's take the goggles off. We all need people in our lives to step up and sometimes God's gonna use you to be that person to take the goggles off for somebody. And that's what Daniel does for this king, is he has some tough conversations with people all throughout his stories, but in this moment, in particular in chapter five, he has a hard conversation, but it's a courageous response to an opportunity that comes up. And I wanna explore what that looks like for him and what that can look like for us. So in this story, we see what? We see the king is having a party, a giant party, thousands of people, I mean, it's a rager, right? There's wine, there's sex, there's partying and loud music and wildness. It's just this image of excessiveness, right? It's just spring break, spring break in Babylon. They're just having a party. King, what's his name? Belshazzar, right? Not one that we always uh, think of when naming our dogs. Belshazzar is having this big party, right? And it's a rager. There's party, 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 party. And we don't know why he's having this party. There could be a bunch of different reasons. Maybe he's just trying to keep people happy because their kingdom is actually about to be conquered, and he's just trying to throw a big party to distract them. Maybe he's just trying to appease people. Maybe he's trying to just show his influence. Maybe he's just trying to escape his own problems, right? Maybe he just likes to party. We don't know why he's having this party, but he's having this party. And then all of a sudden, you talk about a Halloween-esque moment, right? Halloween's coming up this week. All of a sudden, this hand shows up floating in the air. Can you picture that? A hand float like Cousin It. Remember Cousin It in the Adams family? Yeah, some of us with more seasoning in life remember that. That's my way of saying it. We're, we're cultured people. Uh, all of a sudden, this hand shows up and starts writing on the wall. Verse 5 and 6. Suddenly, this is what it says. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace. This is your Halloween story for the week. Come on. Near the lampstand, the king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale and frightening. Frightened, with fright. It was pale with fright. Sean can't read. Chloe, come help me. I may picture that moment. This hand is writing this message. There is a famous painting by the artist Rembrandt that, that captures this. It's called Belshazzar's Feast. Look at the shock in his eyes. Look at the fear, the horror. I mean, just everybody's just like, what is happening? <laughs> right? This rager goes into a moment of, <gasps> and it sparks something. The king has this catalytic moment that sparks a curiosity 
a spiritual curiosity because he sees this supernatural intervention from God. This hand shows up and begins writing these things, and it can't understand what it says, right? None of us know what that says right now in the room, I'm going to guess, other than what we see in the text. They're seeing this. They don't understand it. It's this catalytic moment because he begins to then say, okay, somebody tell me what this means. Google Translate, let's go, right? In Daniel 5, 7, what does it say? The king shouted for the enchanters, the astrologers, the fortune tellers to be brought before him. There are moments in people's lives that cause such a disruption, they begin looking for answers. Think of what those moments could be. Because not many of the people we know are going to see floating hands writing on their plaster walls. So what sparks spiritual curiosity for people? Think about it. Tragedy, loss, crisis, life change, some sort of transition happens in life, change of job, change of residence, change of who's in your home, maybe a birth of a new child could spark a spiritual curiosity for people. A tough interaction at work could spark a spiritual conversation for somebody offline. People begin asking questions, looking for answers, Googling, reading, podcasting. They're just doing what this king would do. They're just doing it in a modern 2023 way. And they're looking for answers. And so what do we do when people are looking for answers? We don't remain silent. We have to speak. So I want to talk about four ways or four factors or attributes that we see in these courageous responses. One is that we see a an element of permission over pushiness, right? A lot of Christians like to be pushy with their faith. Oh, you need the answer? Let me tell you the answer. I got the answer here. Let's just sit down and we're going to tell you the answer right now. Look at Daniel's moment. Daniel has developed a reputation and is recommended to come in and clarify this. Look at the reputation that he has garnered over the years. Daniel is now, we fast forward. I mean, Daniel's in his 70s and 80s. You talk about seasoned in life. This guy has lived in exile for many, many, gener- or many, many decades and has garnered this reputation. The king doesn't know who this guy is, but this is how they describe him. This man, Daniel, whom the king Belshazzar has, whom the king named Belteshazzar, which is different than the king, yeah, anyways, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve solve difficult problems, call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. I want us to notice that Daniel's not out there hunting for sin. And sometimes Christians take it upon themselves to be sin hunters. We become like cyclists do on the road or like trucks become towards cyclists on the road. I am a cyclist, okay? Love me for my flaws if you think that that's a bad thing. But what is interesting as a cyclist I see the way trucks interact with bikes. You like to get really close, really close sometimes. And you like to honk your horn at me, right? And I don't think you're saying hello because you're accompanying it with one finger waves. And I don't think that that's a way that you want to really say hello to me while I'm riding my bike. And so what do I want to do? I want to pedal faster to catch up to you at the next stoplight. And I want to be pushy and tell you, hey, if you hit me, I die. If I hit you, your mirror breaks, right? I want to I wanna bring some context to this moment, right? And I want to like slam on their car and I will yell and I will scream and I will wave. Why? Because I want to be the, the cyclist police. 
And then on the other side of it, there's times where I'm driving and I see a cyclist doing something stupid and I want to be the police for him. Hey, get on the correct side of the road. Put your helmet on. Use your turn signals. Do something, guys. You're making a bad name for us, right? And I take it upon myself to be the enforcer of cycling road uh, chemistry. I want us to be in Kumbaya out there because it should be a safe place to ride our bikes. How many Christians take it upon themselves to want to impose I know the answer. And we come off with this pushiness and this arrogance. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is Daniel's given permission. He's invited into a conversation. And what we're talking about today is not conversations with complete strangers where we go on the street and we confront them about their sin, people we don't know. We're not talking about going into YouTube comment sections and having a courageous response to a troll. What we're talking about is the people in our lives that may be a stranger, may be a spouse, may be a kid, may be a friend, may be a, a person in our church, maybe somebody that we have a lot of life with or very little life with, but somebody that gives us permission to speak. We aren't being pushy. People are watching you as a Christ follower. You say you go to church. You say you love Jesus. You say you believe in the Bible. People are listening to those things. They're watching those things, and they're watching your convictions, your, your habits, your rhythms. They're watching the way that you interact with strangers and public servants, and the way you talk about other people when they're not in the room, and the way your kids are. And, and they're watching these things, and then eventually they're going to look at all of that, and they're going to ask you a question. They're not maybe directly going to come to you and say, hey, will you come into our living room and, and be like Daniel, right? Like, you are the wise one. Will you come and interpret how to raise our children for Jesus? Right? You are the wise one. Will you fix our marriage? You are the wise one. Sometimes permission is very subtle. Sometimes permission is, hey, I noticed your kids don't yell profanity at you. And we'll make an observation. And that is a little door crack opening up. And they're saying, I give you permission because I see something in you that I want. Sometimes, I, I was asking April about this, I said, what does this look like for you in, in engaging with people in the church, outside of the church, people that love Jesus, people that are spiritually unresolved? You know, what, what does it look like for somebody to give you permission? She said, I'm listening for their level of vulnerability. How much are they sharing with me? And somebody will, will sometimes just casually bring something up in a conversation that is extremely personal. That's telling me that they trust me. They're inviting me into their lives. They're bringing me in behind the curtain. They're talking about a conflict or a stress or an anxiety that they aren't posting on Facebook. There are people in our lives that give us permission, but they're not going to blatantly say, like, Todd, will you come in and give me all your wisdom? They're going to ask you a question. They're going to share a little bit of their life. They're going to peel back the curtain a little bit. One of the other things that April notices in, in, in an aspect of permission is she said, when people are repetitious, when I'm around them and they're constantly or continually or just periodically bringing up the same people or same issues or same environments and themes and stressors, she's like, that's their way of, of peeling back the curtain. And it's not about being pushy and inserting yourself, but what, what we begin to look for and recognize is 
that's people's way of saying, I trust you. I believe you're a safe person. I give you permission to walk with me in this part of my life. Are we looking for those moments? Are we aware of those moments? Some of them are direct, some of them are more indirect, right? But a courageous response is given with permission. It's not pushy. It's not unexpected even. The king has asked for Daniel to come into the room. What will you say when people invite you in? The other aspect of, of a courageous response that I see is that a courageous response is clear, not cliche. Daniel doesn't speak in generalities and vagueness, right? What does he speak in? Clarity. This is the problem. This is what happened, right? We see it in verse 22 through 23. He says, you are, you are his successor, King Nebuchadnezzar's successor. And he's talking to King Belshazzar. He says, oh, Belshazzar, you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of the heaven, and you've had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine for them while praising gods, gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything about, know anything at all. But you have not honored God, honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Daniel just tells him what, what, what it is. This is not like, hey man, you've made some missteps. Hey, you've gone off track. Like he gets into the nitty gritty. He gets into what I would call cupgate, right? You read this, everything's a gate now, right? right? Yeah, water gate, spy gate, everything's a gate gate, right? Well, this is cupgate. The king has these treasured cups in his treasure closet and some, something motivates him to take these precious cups and let's party with them. Let's put some wine in them. Let's celebrate our gods with them. Let's, you know, do inappropriate things with them. All of these things in that celebratory party is happening and these cups have been from when King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and they were in the temple. These cups were in the temple as, as, a, as an element for worship. These were in the Jerusalem temple that were used to worship the one true God, and they, they have been taken as a treasure along with the captives of Israel back out of Babylon, or into Babylon, excuse me, out of their homeland as slaves, and this is just thrown into a storage closet for a while to be treasured. And now he's taken them out and treated them like a red solo cup. This isn't treasure. You're treating it like trash. This is a desecration of a special object that was used to worship God. The root of Cupgate, as you might say, everybody's saying it now. The root of Cupgate is that the king displayed an arrogance to say, my kingdom matters more than the kingdom of God. And he mocked God. He wasn't humble in his leadership. The same pattern Nebuchadnezzar went down, this king follows in his footsteps. And David's like, you should have known, Daniel, excuse me, Daniel's like, you should have known better. That in reality, our wealth and our power and our wisdom cannot save us on our own. God is our judge, and each of us has to stand before him. Daniel is not speaking in generalities. He's speaking with clarity. He's speaking direct. He's speaking specifics. There's something to be learned there, that in those direct or in those courageous conversations that we're going to have with people, those aren't text messages. Those aren't emails. 
Sometimes those aren't even phone calls. Those need to be face-to-face conversations. There's a directness that takes place too and a specificity that it's not like, hey, man, something's off. Why are you acting so weird? There's a directness to say, hey, I'm seeing this pattern. I'm seeing this behavior. Objective information that they can look back and they can see themselves. That's what Daniel's doing. He's directly pointing them and saying, You've taken these cups that were meant to honor God and you're, you're just desecrating them. You're making a mockery of God and his kingdom and the one true God. He's speaking very specifically and I think that there's something to be said there that when we have a courageous response, we don't just say like, yeah, God is good, man. Oh, God loves you. God will walk through this with you. When people invite you and give you permission to speak and you have the opportunity to tell them about the truth of Jesus and the truth of how God can change radically their own lives, why would we speak in vague cliches? Why wouldn't we be honest and clear and direct? Because a courageous response is clear. It is not a vague cliche. Thirdly, that Daniel leans into in his courageous response, this is an element, is that he's using to choose or lean into God's words, not his own words. He's leaning into God's words, not his own words, right? You might say that Daniel saw the writing on the wall. Anybody? Anybody? No? Come on. I had that one ready. I just served it up. Nobody bit. Okay. He saw the writing on the wall. Literally. Anyways. Daniel 5, 25 through 28, right? We see this, this phrase is printed on the wall and Daniel is, is brought in to interpret it and he doesn't give him his opinion. He, he gives him the truth of what it says and what it means. And it's this message saying your days are numbered, your actions don't measure up and your kingdom's about to be destroyed. Again, hard conversation, tough confrontation, courageous response. But he's not leaning into, well, this is what Daniel thinks. Hey, man, I've been watching you from afar, and I've been watching you on on Twitter, and I just really don't like the way that you're leading this kingdom of Babylon. This is not Daniel's interpretation of the action. This is Daniel telling him, these are God's words for you right now. And the question I would ask in a courageous response or a courageous confrontation, a courageous conversation is, who or what are we proclaiming? Who or what are we pointing people to? What are we speaking about? He shares a message that he heard from God. He shares a message that he sees is from God. We live in a culture where truth is relative, and so when we get into these conversations, we sometimes want to give them a personalized truth and conversation kind of goes towards this subjective messaging and subjective truth, and truth is all relative. It's like we're all using different forms of currency, right? You're using U.S. dollars, you're using the euro, and you're using monopoly dollars, and you're using shroot bucks, right? We're all using different currency, and whatever currency works for you, it works for you, and you've got wooden nickels, great. Sometimes when we get into these tough conversations, we're just like, you believe whatever you want to believe. Or this is what I believe. Would you believe what I believe? Maybe it's Sean's personalization of something. No, that's not what Daniel is proclaiming. He's not giving him a subjective truth. He's not giving him an opinion. He's not giving him a stance or a worldview. He's giving him the words from God. The word of God that is eternal. A message that was meant not just for that king, but for the king before him. Humble yourself. 
follow the God with that kind of humility. And as Christ followers, am I proclaiming Sean's gospel, Sean's opinions, Sean's view? Or am I presenting the gospel of Jesus? When somebody asks me to speak into their life, they give me that permission. When they trust me to that point, who am I pointing them towards? The Apostle Paul writes it like this to his protege, Timothy. I think it's applicable to all of us. He says, preach the word of God. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Whether you're sitting in a nice, quiet space to talk with them, or you're sitting on the sidelines of your kid's soccer game, or you're sitting in Starbucks, or you're sitting in the checkout line at Safeway. Anytime these conversations could come up, right? Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. But look at this, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. What is Paul telling Timothy to preach? He doesn't say, Timothy, give them whatever's going to feel good. What's going to sound good? What's the best book that they found on Amazon? Preach that. He says, preach the word of God. Point them to the gospel of Jesus because the gospel is intended for every person. The gospel has the power to change our lives. The gospel is a message that says Jesus loves you so deeply he sees you right now in your brokenness and in your sin, and he can forgive you, and he can restore you, and he can lead you to a life of flourishing, not just here on earth, but for all eternity. Preach that. Respond with that. Point to people to that. And I, I think for me, it brings a, a, a courage, and it, it, it keeps me from being fearful and being silent because I recognize that they're not rejecting Sean's opinion in that moment. Sometimes you, you talk with people and it's like, yeah, message not received, right? But I wasn't pointing them towards me. I was trying to point them towards Jesus. And sometimes people just aren't ready to hear it. Doesn't mean I give up. Doesn't mean I wash my hands of them. It doesn't mean I take it personally. It just means we're just not, we're not in sync in this moment. But a courageous response is rooted in God's words and not my own words. And that last part, to me, is freeing because it leads to this last observation that I have in Daniel's story here, which is that a courageous response is more about obedience than outcomes. How many of us want to respond and we want to see a solution at the end of it? We have an outcome that we've expected to see, the final result. We would expect that Daniel would preach this message to the king and say, this is what the writing on the wall, and then the king's like, oh, Daniel, you're so right. And then, yes, let's change, and let's build a temple for God, and let's change our lives, and let's restore all that, right? How many of us have those kinds of expectations when we sit down with people and have hard conversations? I'm gonna sit down with my parent, and I'm gonna tell them about Jesus because I love Jesus, and I want them to love Jesus, and I care about them, and I know at that moment when I'm sitting around their dining room table with my Bible open and I'm praying for them, they're gonna accept Jesus in their heart we're going to walk through the Romans road. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. But sitting there and you have this expectation of how this is going to, oh, I'm going to do this. and I'm going to have this tough conversation. I'm going to have this honest conversation. I'm going to have this response. They're going to start coming to church. They're going to get baptized. We're going to be best of friends. They're going to join my life group. Everything's going to be better. And whoa, we're going to be in heaven forever. <clears throat> how many of you build up expectations and outcomes in your mind? Come on, I know we all jump ahead down the road, right? We think we're all going to end up at the, at the castle at the end of Candyland, right? We're trying to figure it all out. How are we going to get there? And then when that doesn't happen, 
the next time we get invited and permission into a conversation, how many of us are like, forget that. I didn't get the outcome I wanted last time. What's fascinating to me is that Daniel includes this story, and as the story continues in chapter 5, it doesn't go well for the king. The king's kingdom is destroyed. He's dead. It just doesn't work out well, and yet Daniel includes this in his memoir. <laughs> this is not the outcome that would say, like, hey, follow me and do as I do, right? Like, but he includes this. Why? Because the outcome is not our responsibility, and I love bringing this up periodically because we as Christians get so caught up in the outcome and the results and the product at the finish, and uh, we don't have courageous conversations because of the outcomes. We have courageous conversations because of it's a step of our obedience. Whether they obey or not, I can't control people. Anybody good at controlling people? I'm not good at controlling people. And I have a loud voice. And I am charismatic at times. Times. Sometimes I have a whistle as a coach. I can't control people. Can't control my kids. Can't control my wife. Can't control the people in my church. Can't control the people in my community. We get wrapped up in control, and so we want to have these courageous responses and conversations because we think we're going to get the outcome we want. The outcome isn't our responsibility. Our responsibility is to seize the opportunity, seize that moment that we've been given permission and given as God opened that door and say, it is about my obedience to speak up. Because I'm not trying to conform that person into my image, and I'm not trying to get the result that I want. I'm not trying to control them. What am I trying to do? I'm just trying to be obedient to what God has told me to do, which is to share this message that they've given. People aren't going to do what we want. People aren't going to change as fast as we want. But it's speaking up and trusting that God is in charge of the outcomes. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul says this to Timothy, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Paul writes this, I take a deep breath and I just say, oh, I'm not in control of the results. I mean, read that scripture. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. He doesn't say get silent. He doesn't say shut up. He doesn't say stop talking. He says gently instruct those who would oppose the truth. Have those courageous responses. But perhaps God will change their heart. God changes hearts. The Holy Spirit is our source of conviction. God is our judge. God is the one that got your attention, and God is the one that's going to get their attention. The perspective here that we're talking about is about you and I being obedient to seeing the moments that God puts in our, in our path to say, will you, will you do this? Will you be Daniel? Will you share? Will you go? Or will you walk away from this opportunity? Will you be quiet? And it releases us, I think, when I, when I remember that the outcome is up to God, it releases me from a pressure to perform. Anybody silent because they feel like they've got to have everything right? Got to have all the answers, you got to perform. I am free of that pressure when I know I'm not in charge of you. I'm just going to be obedient to what God has put on my heart. What I know is the truth of who Jesus is and the message of love and, and, and grace and mercy and humility that God wants to bring into that person's life, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share that with the same characteristics and attributes. And I think when we take our pressure off of the, the performance and off of the results, 
You know what it also does is it removes that tendency of spiritual abuse and manipulation that can sometimes rise up in church. That can really hurt people. It takes that off. Because you and I are just being obedient. A courageous response is an act of obedience more than conjuring an outcome. A courageous response is an act of obedience rather than conjuring an outcome. And so I want to just take a moment. I want to pray for us. And as we go into worship, I, I want to just give us a chance to reflect. We hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you want to take your next step in following Jesus, fill out the digital connect card at thehubcitychurch.com connect. We'd love to celebrate what Jesus is doing in your life.